joining us, uh, Dr. Anamar's very interesting presentation today. Uh, Christian joined us in September 2013, so a couple of months ago, after having lectured and conducted research in all major Australian universities, and I think that's Australian National University, University of South Wales, and University of Sydney. And that was even after he already laid for himself a career in policy. Is that right? Policy officer in the I was general a, what you'd call a civil Very servant. Right. Yeah, that. Um, his research interests are on global health and his favourite disease to have is a cold and the favourite disease to research is tuberculosis. But also an SSD favourite which is war and, and which is why we're so delighted to have him here today and the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much to the SRG for inviting me to join you. Um, uh, a great honour. This is my third presentation to the SRG. Uh, my first was in 2005 and then later in 2009 and here I am back again. And hopefully um, I will uh, warrant uh, further invitations uh, by not upsetting you too much today. Um, I came to the, to the topic of killer robots um, via the topic of uh, drones, which is the common term used to describe armed, uninhabited aerial vehicles, UAVs. Now, ordinarily, in fact, always, when we contemplate the ethics of war and the way in which technology mediates the relationship between ethics and war, the focus is on human decisions and actions and the actuality or prospect of human suffering. And um, as I look to what the future of drone warfare might look like, my mind and research efforts turns to decisions, actions and suffering of the non-human, non-animal variety. And I was struck by the paradoxes uh, that arise when you think about killer robots, robot warriors, uh, living machines, and things like that. Um, but to start um, with, with where I began, which was um, originally researching drones, this was in the context of what I perceived to be and what you may perceive to be a casualty-averse, some would say post-heroic style of warfare that is favoured by those countries lucky enough to have high technology at their disposal. And a conventional argument advanced is that the availability of technology for remote control killing presents opportunities for political leaders to convince themselves and others that resorting to armed force carries virtually no physical risk. And thus the fascination with the drone, because in this technology the physical separation between the weapon and the warrior in that physical separation, there is said to be scope both to enhance and to degrade adherence to the ethical principles that govern the conduct of war, the principles of jus in bello, to use the language of the just war tradition. So in this seminar, I'll be discussing this as yet theoretical or hypothetical circumstance in which we face not just the physical separation of weapon and warrior, but we face if you like, the integration of weapon and warrior. The weapon is the warrior. Now, in the United States, the UK, elsewhere, there's institutional and technological momentum towards the development and use of 
things that are called killer robots, often the euphemism instead is fully autonomous weapon systems. And as against that technological and institutional momentum, there is this countervailing ethical, uh, often visceral concern about the prospect of machines that can decide to kill humans. So an ethical argument in favour of sort of increased self-governance by a machine in war might be that, well, humans, history shows, have done a really bad job of adhering to ethical principles. Atrocities keep occurring. How about we come up with a robot that can be programmed to do a better job than human warriors? But others will insist that, no, war, in order to be war, and in order to be an enterprise of violence with moral potential has to retain a human element. And yet, robots, the prospect of intelligence and autonomous robots actually challenges us to think about what it truly means to be human and perhaps what it means uh, to be alive. Um, when we contemplate robot warriors and the possibly paradoxical circumstance of post-human war, there's a, there's a critical challenge, really. On the one hand, um, you want to inquire into whether technology can overcome clear, manifest ethical shortcomings in the way that humans use force, but do so in a way that preserves the moral influence of human taking of responsibility when things go wrong or right. That taking of responsibility is really crucial. Okay, so before I um, delve further into those uh, propositions, let me first give you a bit of background. Uh, in September, uh, just before I arrived, um, the British-built Taranis drone was tested in Woomera in South Australia. This drone, named after the Celtic god of thunder, is intended to fly independently using an onboard computer system that helps it uh, perform manoeuvres in the air, it can avoid uh, threats that it encounters in the air, and it can identify, but not engage, targets that it sees on the ground beneath it. Only when the Tyrannus drone needs to attack that on-the-ground target does it seek authorisation from a human controller. But what if circumstances demanded and technology enabled that drone one day to decide for itself when and who to attack. Almost exactly a year ago to the day, the, the US Deputy Defence Secretary Ashton Carter issued a directive called Autonomy in Weapon Systems. And this directive was about establishing guidelines that are designed to minimise the probability and the consequences of failures in autonomous weapon systems that could lead to unintended engagements. So I've used the language of the directive there. And Autonomous weapon systems in Pentagonese means a weapon system that, once activated, can select and engage targets without further intervention by a human operator. Unintended engagement means the use of force resulting in damage to persons or objects that human operators did not intend to be the targets of US military operations, including unacceptable levels of collateral damage beyond those consistent with the law of war, rules of engagement and commander's intent. So there's uh, some resonance there with the just war principles of discrimination and proportionality. 
But this idea of self-regulation by the Pentagon uh, was not enough to assuage um, concerns within and beyond the United States. And in April of this year, the UN Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Summary or Arbitrary Executions, and there's a bit of a hint there in the name of the Special Rapporteur, uh, he recommended a moratorium on the development of lethal autonomous weapon systems, which I'm going to refer to as killer robots. Um, and the rapporteur at the time was and is a South African professor of human rights law, Christoph Heinz. And he argued, quote, the deployment of lethal autonomous weapon systems may be unacceptable because no adequate system of legal accountability can be devised and because robots should not have the power of life and death over human beings. Now, that, that last proposition is particularly tantalising. A non-living entity wielding power of life and death over human beings. So, following on from that recommendation, um, a couple of months later, June of this year, there's a, uh, a relatively short debate in the UK House of Commons and this was a debate about the need in this country to institute a national moratorium on research development um, into killer robots. And uh, the Labour MP and the Shadow Minister for Wales, Nia Griffiths, made the argument, quote, we need urgent action now before technological development and investment makes a race toward killer robots impossible to stop. So there's all this concern out there but what is all the fuss about? What, if anything, troubles us about killer robots? So I think to begin, because the subject for analysis lies at the cusp of state-of-the-art science and science fiction, uh, there's no harm, I think, in recalling what Isaac Asimov had to say in his 1950 novel, I, Robot, about the moral relationship between humans, robots and violence. In that novel, he described three laws of robotics. Some of you may be familiar with these. These laws preclude the very idea of a killer robot. The first law is that a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. The second law is that a robot must obey any orders given to it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. The third law is that a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. So in this futuristic vision, society is divided into two <coughs> categories, humans, robots. The applicability of the three laws is universal. There's no category of humans that a robot owes a greater duty to uh, than to another. Um, and there's no category of robots to which these three laws apply differently or, or not at all. So as between humans and robots in this vision, there is necessarily and hopefully unchangeably a master-slave relationship. Master-slave relationship. And that's very much faithful to the etymology of the very word robot, uh, which comes from the Czech words robotnik, meaning slave, and robota, meaning forced labour. And I guess it's supposed to render both unnecessary and impermissible any circumstance in which a human and a robot are enemies using violence against one another. Now, robotics engineers today, regardless of whether they read Asimov, overwhelmingly, when they think about ethics, tend to think that the ethics ought to be a practical one of preventing robots from harming humans. 
Robotics ought to be about improving, enhancing um, human life, human experience. So for most robotics engineers, the very idea of robot warriors fighting wars in which humans are potential victims um, is anathema. So I'm going to present in in, in three sections, if you like, um, some ideas. In the first part, I'm going to briefly describe to you this technological momentum uh, and the operational imperatives that are driving um, research and development towards greater and greater levels of autonomy, machine autonomy, reduced levels of human control over military uh, equipment. Just explain why it is that we are around this table. Why are killer robots an issue now? Um, Secondly, I'm going to pose the question of whether or not or how Justice in war, adherence to principles of discrimination and proportionality, can be programmed into a machine and then justice processed by that machine. Um, And the third thing I'll do is is address this critical issue of moral responsibility and, related to that, punishment for wrongdoing. Okay, so drones, as remote-controlled, as distinct from autonomous Um, weapon systems. Drones as remote control um, systems have great attractions because the use of force is made so much easier. Um, There is no human flesh needing to be encased and protected on the airframe of a drone. There's no cockpit pressurisation, temperature control, there's no cockpit. The human physical frailty of a pilot is no longer at issue. And so the military utility of drones has been that because humans inside the airframe don't need to be protected, that aircraft can dwell for very long periods of time, uh, monitoring a particular patch of earth and potentially using force against identified targets uh, on the ground. And this has been of great value in parts of the world where the United States has basically been uncontested in the air. Um, Iraq and Afghanistan, we see military use of drones um, in Yemen, Somalia, uh, Pakistan definitely, uh, we're seeing sort of non-military CIA, quasi-military use of drones. But the time will come, the Pentagon certainly anticipates it, where airspace is contested possibly heavily and one's own drones will have to outpace and outdo enemy drones. And the real weakness with remote control is in the very label. Control must be maintained from very far away. And that's about the necessity, therefore, of maintaining a secure and reliable communication system between the machine and the operator. And there's all sorts of things that could go wrong at that level. One thing is that communication system could in some way be interfered with. Control of the machine could be wrested away. Um, The communication system components could be taken out, data transmitters, satellites, um, thus depriving the controller of the ability to um, send and receive data uh, to the machine. Um, But there's also the issue of, okay, even if your um, communication systems are secure and reliable, there might be just so much information being transmitted back and forth, and the, um, the bandwidth available to you might be so insufficient Um, that it is just operationally difficult uh, to operate numerous drones all at once in a particular part uh, of the world. So 
how tantalising it might be, how useful it might be operationally for a drone on the other side of the world to keep (coughs) flying and to keep fighting, as it were, in the absence of communication links. To keep fighting on its own, just with a broad understanding of what the mission as a whole is. Another reason, of course, for um, not only sort of bestowing greater control onto the drone itself and removing control and decision-making responsibility from the, the human controller on the ground is that, again, with all this information being transmitted back and forth, the poor old human brain is increasingly just not up to the task of processing it all, or at least processing it in a timely fashion, where, where time is so often of the essence and critical uh, in military operations. The human brain is increasingly seen as the weakest link in these very highly networked, uh, fast-paced military networks. So if we could rely less and less and perhaps no longer on this feeble organ, the human brain, surely our military endeavours could be much more efficient and much more likely uh, uh, to bring us victory as against uh, our, our opponents. Okay. So that is underpinning the thrust towards machine autonomy, the military utility of reducing reliance on human beings, this this slowness uh, in the system. Let's ponder, though, what it means to be um, autonomous, generally speaking, not necessarily in a military context. Um, Philosophers have argued about this for a very long time and will continue to do so, but... Again, the etymology of the word autonomous, auto and nomos being Greek words, the Greek words for self and rule. And indeed, the the city-states of ancient Greece were politically autonomous because they were governed by their own law rather than the laws of others. Um, Another philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, talked about individual autonomy um, as being experienced by a person who is obedient only to a law that he prescribes to himself. Um, We don't need to delve too deeply into the meaning of autonomy um, and certainly we don't need to agonise too long about what it means to have pure or absolute autonomy because I don't think even human beings have that. But we can think in terms of degrees of autonomy and machines being at least or perhaps at most as autonomous as a human being or in our context, as a human warrior. Okay, that decision to make, um, that the decision to select a target and to use force against that target being made by a machine instead of a human being is, I hasten to add, a long way off, both politically and from a technological perspective. And... There are many in military organisations that have already deployed um, uh, drones and and ground-based remotely operated systems who say that a lot of this talk of killer robots is premature, unnecessary, it's so far off in the future, possibly will only ever be science fiction. But I think there's real utility in asking ourselves well in advance of something even that might not happen, 
um, of, of what the military implications might be and, crucially, what the ethical implications might be. We cannot simply wish killer robots out of future existence. And a lot of this institutional and operational momentum towards greater and greater levels of machine decision-making seems to be almost wishing it into existence. So, some problems to be considered. The moral case for introducing robot warriors into war, if you wanted to make that case, would depend firstly on those machines improving the conduct of war, improving from an ethical perspective the conduct of war. But secondly, you would have to assure people that justice in war was being uh, safeguarded because responsibility for any misconduct that does occur in war is going to be fairly attributed. And that attribution of responsibility has to be accompanied by meaningful punishment, and I'll return to that shortly. But first to this critical issue of programming and processing the principles of discrimination and proportionality into a machine. Now we know, as all of us are to a greater or lesser extent students of military history, that warriors sometimes behave unethically, whether because of a lack of awareness, inadequate training, emotional stress, or whatever reason, humans have on numerous occasions used force in a manner that is indiscriminate, disproportionate, atrocious. Um, is there not, therefore, considering that long, horrible record, a responsibility to at least investigate the possibility that a machine could do better? How can we not undertake such investigation? How can we deprive ourselves of the possibility of a better world? The robotics engineer Ronald Arkin at uh, the Georgia Institute of Technology is probably the foremost and most conspicuous advocate of robot warriors. And his task, using funding from the US Department of Defense, is to program ethics into machines. He wants robots without emotions that cloud their judgment, to use his words. Um, and his Pentagon-funded project is about, quote, coming up with design recommendations for the implementation of an ethical control and reasoning system potentially suitable for constraining lethal actions in an autonomous robotic system so that they fall within the bounds prescribed by the laws of war and the rules of engagement, unquote. So the idea is that Arkin and people like him, as robotics engineers, will embed into machinery an ethical governor component and that is a component by reference to which a machine is able to conduct its own evaluation of the ethical appropriateness of a, of a would-be lethal use of force prior to that lethal use of force being enacted. It would be the stop-and-think ethically component of the machine. Now, considered in the abstract, and perhaps considered for not too very long, this idea of bringing about a higher degree of overall adherence to just war principles in war um, by having robots do it more than humans do it, that seems a very worthwhile and important goal. But there are at least two pretty serious flaws in 
in this particular project. And they go to the issue, firstly, of feasibility, but also the issue of desirability as regards programming and processing justice into a machine. So on the first floor, arguably, I would say, and you might perhaps disagree, that the problem of, the problem of poor ethical performance in war is simply not amenable to a technical solution. And this is because the rules of war are themselves inherently unprogrammable. Inherently unprogrammable. The second floor, and I'll come to each of these um, in greater detail in a second, the second floor of this project might be that the moral justification for deploying autonomous machines in place of human warriors, although intended to increase the overall morality of the conduct of war, is actually of a kind that effectively lowers the expected standard of ethical conduct in war. So I'll turn to that shortly. But first, to this issue of programming. Ron Arkin wants robots with an ethical code built in. And his idea is that this ethical code has already been established by humanity and is already, to use his words, encoded in the laws of war and rules of engagement. And I guess any international humanitarian lawyer would immediately reply and would say, well, look, first of all, rules of engagement are not owned by humanity. They're owned by different states and they will vary from state to state and conflict to conflict. And even more to the point, the laws of war, although they might be written down, in no way resemble code in the way that code is contemplated by computer scientists and robotics engineers. International law like any law perhaps, is open to interpretation, open to challenge, open to change. And even international laws that at first glance look very straightforward, for example, the prohibition against torture, then become quite difficult to apply and perceive as you work through particular circumstances. Although we would all agree in this room, perhaps that torture is bad, we might not be able to agree about what torture is. So there's a... Perhaps robotics engineers are seduced by the fact that international law is written down and, and then think that that writing amounts to codification. Not at all. And their good intentions notwithstanding, perhaps these robotics engineers who are, for very good reasons, eager to achieve a programmed, engineered solution to human atrocity at the earliest opportunity to save lives, they might say, perhaps in that effort they will be tempted to see the ethics of war as less complicated, less contestable than they are in practice. And so the danger is that ethical principles will not be encoded in a machine but rather distorted or, or truncated um, because of this perceived need to convert law into a machine algorithm. But also in practice, we lawyers will talk about discrimination and proportionality, but those are abstract terms. Discriminate use of force is highly dependent on one's perception of circumstance. If you see a child carrying a grenade launcher, can you, without knowing anything else, 
say for certain that that child is a legitimate target. If you see a tank towing an ambulance and you know nothing else, can you be certain that that tank is still a legitimate military target? In addition to um, uh, the sort of the the inchoate nature of discrimination and proportionality as principles to be applied, there's all the social, religious, political, economic context to be laden onto a particular set of circumstances that will then inform judgments about how to use force. And suddenly this becomes really quite an overwhelming task, even for a machine. I want to now turn to the second of... Um, second of the flaws that I see in, in Arkin's project um, to encode ethics into robot warriors. And that's this issue of, well, it's not desirable to do so because it is lowering the standard of, of expected uh, behaviour. So let's, let's imagine that somehow a robot warrior is designed and deployed to use force more ethically. Let's just imagine that that can happen and that does happen. More ethically in the sense that that machine uses force at a standard that is demonstrably superior to what would in practice be expected of human warriors by reference to perhaps contemporary or historical experience. Being satisfied just with that, even if that did happen, still poses a moral problem, I think, because... Arkin argues, for example, autonomous armed robotic platforms may ultimately reduce casualties by their ability better to adhere to the laws of war than most soldiers possibly can. That's his proposition. But he's using quite a low standard by his own admission. And he's using as his moral benchmark the record of human frailty rather than the ideal of human perfection. And this is why it is, in fact, a lowering of standards, ethically speaking, to go along with this project. Because doing something better than humans is not the same as doing it well, per se. And humans, for example, are still expected to be perfect, even though history shows and modern-day life constantly reminds us that we are not. It for example, is not cause for congratulation if in a given year or decade a person is able to say, proclaim, I have been 99% compliant with the law. That is not what it's about. But rather, in theory at least, that 1% non-compliance with the law should be the subject um, of, of punishment. And it is no defence for that person to say, well, yes, 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 but... Normally, other people are only 98% compliant with the law. So I'm exceeding normal practice. But that's not how the law works or what society expects. But if we go along with um, Arkin's line of reasoning, robots exceeding human standards is the cause for congratulations and celebration. But being satisfied with that is to give up, in a sense, is to give up on the possibility of perfection. So that's a, there's a problem whether we should be preparing ourselves to be satisfied with something that is 
imperfect. Surely we can be and want better than that. Okay, so last I'd like to um, finish off on the critical issue of moral responsibility and related to that, the issue of punishment for wrongdoing. Let's imagine a, a point is reached at which a robot makes and acts upon a decision to kill a human being. At that point, and if that killing is morally wrong because the robot knew the human in question was a non-combatant, let's say just an infant, at that point it will be vital to establish who is responsible. It is vital to, to, to establish that we owe it to the infant as a matter of justice. To whom do we assign responsibility for what the robot has done? If we find that we cannot assign responsibility to anyone, we may find ourselves facing a responsibility gap, which is ethically intolerable, as it were. Nature abhors a vacuum, and so too um, ethical vacuums are abhorrent, especially when human life is on the line. So is there a responsibility gap? Well, we can identify at least three possible loci of blame, according to the way that the Pentagon itself conceives of autonomous weapon systems. So I'm going to quote you in full the Pentagon definition of those systems and using that definition then refer to three possible bearers of responsibility for wrongdoing. So the definition is autonomous systems are self-directed toward a goal in that they do not require outside control but rather are governed by laws and strategies that direct their behaviour. Initially, these control algorithms are created and tested by teams of human operators and software developers. However, if machine learning is utilised, autonomous systems can develop modified strategies for themselves by which they select their behaviour. An autonomous system is self-directed by choosing the behaviour it follows to reach a human-directed goal." Unquote. So let's pluck out particular phrases from that definition. One possible bearer of responsibility is the robot's programmer. So the words control algorithms are created and tested. Another possible bearer of responsibility is the robot's commander in the field or from further afield. Reference to a human-directed goal. A third possibility, one that seems rather exotic, is that blame is sheeted home to the robot itself. The phrase, autonomous systems select their behaviour. But if, as I say, none of these three can be fairly assigned responsibility, there could be some unfair assignations. Um, if none of those three can be fairly assigned responsibility, there is a responsibility gap that is intolerable. And that would require that these so-called <coughs> autonomous weapon systems could not be used at all. Because by failing to provide a, a way of um, punishing injustice, you court it. You court injustice. So the responsibility gap is not allowed to stand. So just very quickly, in the minutes remaining, these three possible loci of blame. The human programmer. Well, this might seem like a very good idea. Why not have all robot programmers on notice that if anything goes wrong with their, their creation, <clears throat> they will be held responsible? A bit like product liability. 
strict liability for anything that goes wrong. That would certainly concentrate the mind. It would concentrate the minds of programmers to be very careful to ensure that there was no wrongdoing. And yet, that is not the task that they have been given. Theirs is not the task of anticipating and planning for and ruling out particular eventualities. On the contrary, they are designing a machine that can learn from experience and do things differently. This is about designing a machine that will be usefully unpredictable. And so it makes no sense that a programmer would in any way be trying to rule out certain eventualities. Not only do they not want to do that in terms of what their instructions are from military planners, but also that's not what autonomous systems uh, engineering is all about. So it doesn't make sense to assign responsibility to the programmer because this process is all about um, taking decisions away from what the programmer uh, was within the programmer's contemplation. So what about the commander in the field? Perhaps you could say, well, look, the commander can take responsibility for anything that goes wrong when a robot uh, is used in the field um, in the same way that they take responsibility in certain circumstances for the wrongdoing of uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen under their command. Or perhaps with the use of uh, military dogs, um, they might take responsibility. It's just potentially dangerous to deploy this particular capability, but as the commander, I will take that on. But commanders perhaps themselves are going to be extremely reluctant to be held responsible for a similar reason to what I just discussed, which was, well, look, here we are deploying machines that are designed to learn and to be usefully unpredictable. As far back as 1949, the American mathematician Norbert Wiener wrote an essay to the New York Times, 1949, and he had this to say about um, the machines of the future. He said, if we move in the direction of making machines which learn and whose behaviour is modified by experience, we must face the fact that every degree of independence we give the machine is a degree of possible defiance of our wishes defiance of our wishes, acting contrary to a commander's intent. This certainly concerns the Pentagon, and in its latest Unmanned Systems Integrated Roadmap, which is its um, premier document about where it is and where it wants to be going with unmanned systems and autonomous systems, um, it has the following to say. It says, quote, robust safeties and control measures will be required for commanders to trust that autonomous systems will not behave in a manner other than what is intended by commanders on the battlefield, unquote. That's in there to reassure commanders that they won't end up being blamed for what an autonomous machine does. And yet there's a delicious irony here, is there not? On the one hand, yes, limiting robots' autonomy with safeties and, and uh, control measures, etc., is a way of heading off a refusal by American military commanders to use robots for fear that they'll be punished for, for when things go wrong. But on the other hand, the whole logic behind the American pursuit of technological advancement in this area is about maximising military utility by maximising autonomy. Maximising autonomy. Fewer controls. Fewer sort of robust safeguards, if you like. 
the greater the freedom of the machine, the more militarily useful it is, this useful unpredictability. So what if we consider then, if blaming the programmer doesn't make sense, and if blaming the commander um, could could make robot warriors um, unable to be used in practice and therefore a non-issue. What if the idea came up, well, we'll blame the robot. We'll blame the robot. And suppose we arrived at the point where we, were, we felt able uh, to do that. Would we object that this entity that we're blaming is a non-living entity? Or would we be satisfied that Autonomy per se is what is morally significant when attributing responsibility for apparently deliberate actions. Would we be prepared to regard a machine as autonomous in a way identical to or comparable with the way we regard fellow human beings as autonomous? I guess much depends on whether we truly believe that that self-governing machine entity could understand and really feel, and I do mean feel, what it means to have done the wrong thing. What would punishment feel like for that mechanical entity? Could that, could we, for example, imagine a, uh, an autonomous flying robot, what might have once been called a drone, being punished by being fined an amount of money because that drone has been programmed somehow to value money because that machine can use money to get itself repainted, have repairs done, decorate its wings in ways that it somehow meaningfully thinks gives it enjoyment. Would that be enough to be able to find um, machines that do the wrong thing? Or would we require, we as human beings, as flesh and blood entities, would we require that there be pain (coughs) and physical suffering. And how would that manifest in a machine? Could we ever believe that a machine could suffer? If we don't think we could ever believe a machine could suffer, there are probably serious difficulties in anyone being satisfied that punishment of a robot is justice served. And if we struggle there to to satisfy ourselves on that point, we might, having ruled out the programmer and the commander, and then requiring ourselves to rule out the assignation of blame to the robot itself, we might end up with the responsibility gap that we had feared. But just by way of a parting thought, suppose, suppose we did get to the point where... We were convinced that the punishment of a robot was meaningful. There's a scene, and I must resort to science fiction, there's a scene in the 1977 film Star Wars where Luke Skywalker removes from R2-D2 and C-3PO, these droids, a restraining bolt, uh, a a little piece of machinery attached uh, to the body of the droid Uh, that prevents it, well, depending on the intention of the the person applying a bolt, prevents it from straying too far or doing certain things. It's a limitation on that droid's liberty, as it were. Now, deprivation of liberty and 
denial of the freedom of movement is an established punishment that human beings can understand. Could we understand what it means to, to flog a robot or to execute a robot? Would we understand what that meant? Perhaps we could understand that if indeed we were also satisfied that a robot warrior could behave ethically in war because we saw in that machine a spark of what we would recognise as humanity. That in order to arrive at a robot that can make ethical decisions, that robot will have then arrived at the point where we perceive it to be very like ourselves. An interesting circumstance to contemplate because at the start when I talked about remote control killing and drone warfare, I talked about casualty aversion and this post-heroic style of warfare. Drones are being deployed so as not to endanger the bodies of, of US military personnel. This is about protecting people that we care about. Could we get to the point where if we believe that robots can suffer and therefore are able to experience punishment and truly know what it means to have done the wrong thing and thereby be sensitive to the requirements of justice, could that same awareness feed back and cause in us a reluctance not only to see robots suffer because of being punished for wrongdoing, but a reluctance also to see robots suffer in war at all, to see them suffer as warriors? Would we find ourselves reluctant to deploy robots for the same reason that we are reluctant to deploy human soldiers? Thank you. Thank you. I think we've got plenty of time for questions.